0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the 94 NBA podcast. I'm one of your hosts, as always, Eric Spyropoulos. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros NBA. Uh, recording on a Saturday tonight, Saturday, December 15th. Corbin, how are you doing tonight?
1: You know, on a night, Eric, where I have my man Lonzo Ball and LeBron James both record triple doubles in a win, I'm doing just fine. Uh, <laughs> just fine, man. How how you been?
0: Doing pretty well. Um, That was just an insane blowout by the Lakers. And and I got to say 10 seconds on the Hornets because this was a team. I watched them beat the Pistons for a new segment I'm doing. Not a segment. A thing I'm doing on my Twitter called NBA Morning After. You should check it out. Very good, by Uh, the way. Thank you very much. Uh, So I watched the Hornets beat the Pistons. And at the top of that broadcast, they had put a graphic up of the Hornets' upcoming schedule. It was Knicks at home, Lakers at home. Uh, I want to say, Cavs at home, Pistons um, at home again. Like they had four, they had five. I would argue winnable games. First game against the Knicks, they're up by twenty plus points in the second half. They lose at home in overtime to the Knicks. Followed up the next night by losing by thirty plus points to the Lakers. I'm sure losing to Lakers is not like anything disappointing for them because the Lakers are a really good team. But to lose like that at home is disappointing. When you had a stretch of your schedule where you could have created some separation for that six, seven, eight seed and kind of really, you know, firmly entrenched yourself in a playoff spot. Of course, what do the Hornets do? Nothing. And they're down to below 500 again. I mean, it's the same story with this team, unfortunately.
1: Always. And I mean, this is on a night where your main guy, Kemba Walker, had off night 25 minutes, only four points on two of 13 shooting, missed all five of his threes, one rebound, three assists. He's really tailed off from that huge um, supernova start that he had. I mean, the last three games he's had have all been, what, 8 out of 25 shooting, 6 out of 20 shooting, and then last night, he's really tailed off. And when you're that, the main offensive weapon, yes, Cody's always been playing great for them, and, you know, Jeremy Lamb's been solid, but Kemba Walker's your guy. You go as far as he goes. And if he's having a bad night by any stretch of imagination, the the Hornets aren't going nowhere. So, like you said, same story of what, the past three years?
0: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I I actually tweeted out a couple hours ago, because I saw, I checked the box score and saw he was shooting so poorly, and I looked up the numbers, and he has... Really fallen off. I mean, basically fallen off a cliff since he started the season. So, in October, he averaged 30 points per game on on a 61% true shooting, which is extremely elite numbers. November down to 25 points per game on 56% true shooting. So down five points per game and down 5% in true shooting. And then you get to December and he is down to 20 points per game on 48% true shooting. And that was before he shot two of 14 tonight. So that's going to drop below. He's going to be averaging less than 20 points per game this month on probably below like 44% true shooting, which is like Worse than the league type efficiency in the month of December. So if he's not playing—that's the problem with this team. If he's not playing at his best pretty much every night, they, they don't stand no chance against you know, some of the bad teams, but they stand no chance against the good teams, and they're going to lose a lot of games against the bad teams like they did against the Knicks. So.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's just it. I, I like that first aside to talk about the Hornets. <laughs>
0: Listen,
1: Pretty sometimes patient. we got
0: to get it out. Sometimes we got to get it out. But uh, yes, uh, let's not take away from what we do have to talk about. So we're deciding to cut our mailbag short this week because we actually have both an extension, a contract extension to talk about, and a trade to talk about. Um, let's just start with the extension. It's a little bit more clear-cut. Spencer Dinwiddie, three years, $34 million uh, extension with a player option on the third year. Um, my initial thought was that this is a great deal for both sides because the Nets get Dinwiddie, who, by the way, is skyrocketing up my six-man-of-the-year ballot. But just he should be skyrocketing off everybody's six-man-of-the-year ballot. Um, he put up a 39 points career high the night before signing the extension. Then he followed it up with, I think, 29 points against the Wizards. Um, the Nets have won four straight, you know, a large part because of Spencer Dinwiddie's play. So... I look at this deal because the Nets get a quality point guard locked up for basically the foreseeable future um, on what for his level of play and for this market I think is reasonable money. And then for Dinwiddie, he gets the money up front um, and he also gets a chance to re-enter free agency at 28 for one more nice long-term deal. Of course, if things don't go well – over the next two seasons he has the play option he could just pick it up for you know a nice juicy I think would be 12 million dollars or something like that for that third year but if he does play well he gets reasonable money for the next two years and then enters free agency again for the probably the last contract of his prime year. so I like this deal for both sides. I think it was kind of a clear cut move. And once they started, you know, they struggled once Levert went down, and once Dinwiddie picked it up, and, and Russell, who also kind of factors in interestingly in this situation, once they both picked it up, the Nets have started winning more. The Nets decided they they should lock up Dinwiddie for for a nice couple of years.
1: Yeah, I think that thirty nine um, <laughs> that thirty nine point uh, audition really kind of also helped. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Dinwiddie's been playing great for them. Um, steady backup guard. Obviously, the Nets believe, as well as Dimity himself, that he has some additional upside that they can cash in on. This contract will kind of take him up through his prime or up, you know, up through most of it. So that's, that's pretty cool. And, yeah, it's it's a great deal. Uh, I think it's, it's more team friendly. There's a lot of cash space gone from there. But I think, I mean… From the Nets' perspective, yeah, they they're they weren't major major major, blah, 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 major major players, and the money that they have right now is going to players that they feel are going to be part of their uh, the cornerstone of their team moving forward, maybe the next great Nets team. And hey, they think Demi is a part of that future. All the power to them. Uh, yep. I don't know what that means for D'Angelo Russell, but I'll let you go on.
0: Huh? Well, that that's the in- that's the really interesting part here. One is you know how they how they view Russell and Hollis Jefferson, both restricted free agents. Basically, using if they get rid of both of their cap holds, if they just renounce their free agency rights to both of those players, I think they can still create, I think, close to like 40 million in cap space. But if they don't renounce their rights, I think they have somewhere around 20 million in cap space. That's, I, it was just, you know, that's kind of off the top of my head memory of seeing a tweet about it. But, um, before we go to like that kind of aspect of it, just, just looking at Russell's – I mean, not Russell, uh, Dinwiddie's numbers. The last five games, he doesn't – he only plays 30 minutes a night. He's not like playing 35-plus minutes a night because basically Kenny Atkinson doesn't really do that for anybody. Um, but <laughs> for real. The last five games for Spencer Dinwiddie, 25 points per game, 5.5 assists per game. He's shooting 37.5% from three, which is above average on five attempts per game, 54% from the field overall. Uh, I mean, only 2.4 turnovers. He got the ball in his hands a lot. Like, he has just been so good. He's up to over 17 points per game and 5 assists on the season. And those are, we'll get to this later in our award segment, those are six man of the year numbers. Um, So, it'll be interesting to see how well he keeps it up. Obviously, this is a hot streak. um, But, you know, the shooting isn't that ridiculous. He's not shooting over 40% from 3. You know, he's just getting to the rim like he does. He's using his length um, and just hitting clutch shots. Uh, Now, for Russell, he's been better recently. I, I, I've i been, you know, thoroughly impressed with how Russell has been playing recently um, and he's got a high cap hold and really the thing with Russell and I guess for Hollis Jefferson too since they're restricted free agency is that the Nets can kind of let the market dictate their price. Um, mm-hmm. But Russell's been... You know, the last five games, he's only averaging 15 points a game, but over seven assists per game, shooting 37.5% from three as well. Um, on the season, he's basically putting up the same number, 17.5 points per game, uh, six assists, almost four rebounds. He's shooting 36% on threes, which is a good number for him, um, not even playing more than 29 minutes per game. You know, he's really, he's a little bit hit or miss. He's obviously been a lot more hit recently as the Nets have been winning, Um but the thing is with him, I think what the Nets will do, and what I would do if I was if I was them, is kind of let the market dictate his price. I think early on in free agency, they'll be able to see if there's really a lot of you know suitors for Russell, and mm-hmm. I, I I just don't know. I'm not at that point yet where I'd feel comfortable paying him more than the deal that Dinwiddie just got. Like I don't think I would pay Russell more than no? um, like eleven million dollars a year. I mean,
1: okay. So uh, when I when I, I look at that differently, because you're right, I wouldn't pay him. I would pay, I would not pay him – if we put this in a vacuum, just that contract, I think more than 11 is kind of risky for a player of Russell's caliber. Now, I obviously lean toward Russell more because I think we're paying for you know, upside here, delivery. He's been playing stronger, as you said, the last um, couple of weeks here, and you know what you're getting as far as shooting and, and a steady floor game. So I, I wouldn't mind paying him more than Dinwiddie, but as you said, by giving Dinwiddie this contract extension, the price has already been set. So, in this case, yeah, Brooklyn's in a spot where, listen, we match any and all offers. Um, I'd expect teams, I would hope teams like Orlando or Phoenix would make one because they really need a point guard. And, apparently, they, the Suns can't figure it out through a trade. And I doubt any point guard's going to come running over to Orlando or Phoenix this upcoming offseason. However, yeah, you're right. In a roundabout way of saying that, uh, yeah, you don't, I mean, I wouldn't mind it personally. But, like, rationally and, and logistically thinking, it would not make much more, it would not make any sense, really, to pay Russell more than dimly, just by how stable he's been as well as the contract that is on the table.
0: Yeah, and I think think the nightmare scenario for the Nets is that they strike out on all free agent targets, whether they're stars or just like solid role player targets or solid starters, and then they outbid themselves on Russell. Like, that would be a nightmare scenario. If you're the Nets, and I don't think they will, I think their front office has kind of shown that they're pretty shrewd and kind of free agency. um, And I think they really will, like, let this linger. Like, we remember Clint Capella didn't get signed for a couple weeks, and people were like, what's going on? And the Rockets Rockets were just letting the market dictate his price, and they got him at a very reasonable deal. Um, I think the Nets will do that. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if Russell, either Russell, I think what's going to happen is either Russell gets a nice offer from a team that needs a point guard, is desperate maybe. Maybe, you know, the, the Suns, you know, Booker and Russell are friends. Maybe Booker's like, hey, Russell's on the market, throw him some kind of offer or something like that. Um, I think what'll happen is either Russell's g- going to get a nice offer early for agency that kind of really, you know, pinches the Nets and kind of makes it a tough decision for them, like maybe four years, $60 million or something like that. Or, or he doesn't get anything in free agency. That's kind of a nice offer, and he just sits and waits. And then he, you know, he gets brought back by the Nets on like this kind of Dinwiddie extension. Or he just takes the qualifying offer and, you know, bets on himself to get a, to become an unrestricted free agent in 2020 because he's so young. Um, I think those are kind of the three scenarios, and it's really hard to predict what's going to happen now. But I mean, that's my take. We don't have to spend that much time on it, but I think it's very interesting given how they're both mm-hmm. playing well. They're both. You know, both point guards, they're both putting up basically the same stats this year. Dinwiddie's, like, I think two and a half or three years older, um, but not, like, he's still 25, so it's not, like, um, a huge age difference. And the Nets have free agency plans, so and Russell and Hollis Jefferson, their cap holds, impact those free agency plans. So it's really fascinating. And obviously the Nets are that team where everyone's, like, waiting for them to maybe add one more piece, be healthy, and make the playoffs next season. So it's kind of fascinating.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, for the Nets, if they don't get Russell back, it's not like – if anything, I think it – not that there's a um backcourt roster battle or anything, but I think the lines are more set having Karis Levert there alongside Dinwiddie. You know what I mean? There's there's not really this like I said, it's not tension, but who's starting, who's coming off the bench. Obviously I think Dinwiddie would prefer starting. There's some more clarity in the roster. And as you said, there's gonna be some interesting outlooks for in the offseason for Brooklyn because you're right they do have Rondae Hollis Jefferson he's a very uh divisive and interesting player to uh evaluate as far as free agency and how much you pay and whether you'd keep him Russell being the same way but now that you've already made that first step by bringing along Dinwiddie for the next three years you know the water is a little more clear or it can be possibly for Brooklyn moving forward
0: yeah, all I say all I'll say is that it's much easier to talk yourself into D'Angelo Russell than it is for, for Ronda yes. Hollis Jefferson because I don't know what Hollis Jefferson's market's gonna be. I mean, he's just not been the defender we expected, he cannot shoot the ball, which kills their offense. Um and then he has these stretches where he's like he's got this unorthodox game, he can get to the rim, um, he's kinda long. I I just I have no idea what to predict for his market. It'll be really interesting to do. But uh Let's get into the trade um, that happened or the the mess that this situation was. Oh, man. Recap I'm, it, please. Oh, so we were going to record last night, and I'm, I'm thankful that we didn't because we were uh, – up this trade – I think this trade broke maybe like 10 minutes before we were about to record, and I messaged you that we we're going to have breaking news to talk about, and yep. <laughs> I got to we, you well <laughs> we would have gotten onto this – recording and probably spent 20, 25, maybe 30 minutes analyzing this trade only to find out an hour and a half later, I think it was like midnight Eastern time that the trade is off or something like that. And so what happened was it was supposed to be the Wizards, the Suns, and the Grizzlies in a three-team deal. And if I remember correctly, it was supposed to be Ariza, Trevor Ariza sent to the Wizards and the Suns would get Austin Rivers, Wayne Selden, and... A Brooks from the Grizzlies key on a Brooks, because the Suns thought they were getting Dylan Brooks. The wizards thought Dylan Brooks was going to be involved, but the Grizzlies always thought it was Marshawn Brooks. A big difference there. Cause Dylan Brooks is that kind of that young player that has more potential and has been, you know, better than Marshawn Brooks recently. Um, and so that was supposedly the deal and the wizards are supposed to get a 2020 second round pick from the Grizzlies as well. And the Grizzlies, I forgot to mention, we're going to get Kelly Oubre, which I would have been fascinated by to see that happen. Um, so as I mentioned, the teams got mixed up about the Brooks that was involved in the trade. Apparently the Grizzlies and the Suns never contacted each other directly. They were only working through the the Wizards and Ernie Grunfeld who was navigating the trade. I'm not sure why they don't do conference calls. I guess they don't know how to do that or <laughs> yeah, it's I too mean, hard. There was a Sky rumor <laughs> it, There was a rumor that the teams representatives found out through Twitter which Brooks was like not being involved. It was just a complete mess. Anyways, the Grizzlies apparently pulled out after after they heard that, that the teams expected Dylan Brooks to meet Vol because they were never going to discuss that. And so the trade, what ended up happening the next morning, this morning actually, um, was that Washington was just like, all right, Phoenix, let's just get the deal done, you know, just with us two teams. And so now the Wizards get Trevor Reza and the Suns get, again, Austin Rivers. And now Kelly Oubre, instead of going to the Grizzlies and the three-team deal, goes to the Suns. Um, and so... There was this report after the trade happened that Kelly Oubre might get flipped again. I mean, there's a lot of wings in Phoenix. And I would have been so interested to see what Memphis could have done with him. And they have such an organized system and a culture. And then they've got great leaders there. Derek Temple, Conley, Gasol. They're playing well. They've got the certain style of play. I think they would have really given Oubre a role and told him what to do and how to do it. And he would have thrived. Not thrived, but he would have been better than he's been in Washington. I think that the Wizards basically since he got in the league, have just said, okay, Kelly, you're going to come off the bench, and when you come off the bench, just run around and play with a chicken with its head cut off and do whatever you want. You know, you know, just shoot, don't pass, uh, go for your stat. Like, they did not give him a defined role. Obviously, that locker room has also been a mess in Washington. I thought Ube would have had his best chance uh, of his career in the NBA in Memphis, so I'm kind of disappointed to see him end up in Phoenix, where we know people <sighs> just, you don't really go to Phoenix to thrive. Um, nope. So that's a little bit disappointing for Oubre's perspective and, and from my perspective. I think this is fine for Phoenix. I don't say, I wouldn't say I love it. I wouldn't even say I like it that much. But I mean, maybe Oubre gets flipped for something else. Or even if they get Oubre, they get an, another look at a young wing. Maybe they keep Oubre and flip one of their other wings. Um, probably like a Josh Jackson, I guess. Or maybe even they sell high on TJ Warren, who's having the best year of his career quietly. Um, so I think it crowds their wing area their wings um even more than it already did basically um because they all uh, now they're basically all young guys instead of you know having that Ariza guy who you know is you know 33 years old you don't have to give him the playing time every night um something like that so but and they get Austin Rivers who if he plays like he did last year in LA isn't it's like you can kind of squint and see somewhat of a fit next to Booker or someone who can provide some value as an above average three-point shooter that that gives effort defensively he's been bad this year which is why it's kind of I don't really wouldn't count on it um But really, my whole thing with this trade is I just do not get it at all for the Wizards. Like, am I the only – Like, I don't get it at all. Nope,
1: you're not. I was thinking the exact same thing. He's a solid player, okay? In Phoenix, I like to liken – I like (laughs) to liken. I liken Ariza's effort or lack thereof just to playing in Phoenix. I think, hey, I think this is all by design. I think he went to Phoenix so he knew he'd get the money. He probably didn't realize how bad the culture was at that point. He said, you know what? I got 15 I'm just going to sit on it. You know, go through the motions until I get bought out or traded. So he gets traded. Now I think you'll see him more engaged to read. However, he's getting traded to the worst team in the East. And what, I mean, he's a solid player shooting 36% from beyond the arc, uh, by all accounts, before Phoenix at least, a good locker room presence. And not to say he wasn't in Phoenix, but there's been reports I've read on Bright Side of the Sun and other uh, Suns blogs that he's not really been much of a leader. So, you know, take that for whatever it's worth. However, you're going to a team where the culture's bad. You've been, played there before pretty well. At 2011 to 2013, he was solid. But, he doesn't raise their ceiling whatsoever. I mean, they are still comfortably behind the Raptors, the Celtics. Um, you put them, uh, what, the, the, the Bucks, the Sixers, the Pacers. I mean, all those teams, they're, they're down. He doesn't move the needle in any respect. It's not like the Wizards are, let's say, even two years ago when they got Paul Pierce. or what was that three years ago now where they need that one veteran guy to kind of put them over the edge or kind of make them, you know, a comfortable fifth place Eastern Conference team. He's not bringing that. They still have a plethora of issues, and I don't know which ones are going to skate over. He's gone from one, you know, interesting <laughs> front office locker room setup to just an outright toxic one, and I'm not really sure why they brought him there. I, I, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Is that what was he worth giving up Oubre for?
0: I mean, that's the thing. They could have, I mean, Oubre really, they could have, what, what they need. Um, they still need a big man. That's what they need. They need rebounding and yes. they need more defense. Ariza is, a better defense. Player. Ariza is a better player than Oubre. He's a better defender than Oubre. He's a better shooter than Oubre. Um, but he's not good enough on any of those areas more than Oubre and I guess kind of a little bit of Austin Rivers can provide to make much of a difference. Like this team needs a big man that can rebound and give an interior defensive presence. And they need Otto Porter to turn things around a little bit. Um, and really they, listen, Ariza had arguably his best season of his career that last year in Washington, 2013, 2014, he shot over 40% from three. Um, and is and basically that's the only time he shot above 37% uh, in his career. He shot 37.1% in 2015, 16 with the Rockets. That is the second highest percentage of his career. So it looks like that 40% is a bit of an anomaly. Um, so, you know, he's going to provide defense. He's going a try harder, you would think on a team that's, still has, a, you know, unfortunately, is still three games out of the eighth seed, despite there being 11-18, and 18, having lost four straight. That's just the Eastern Conference for you. um, And so he should try more. Um, I want to see him trying more to see how, how much of a regression is coming from his age. Obviously, I, I agree with you. The effort, I think, is because of being in Phoenix and not being on a winning team. Um, oh, yeah. And that culture's a mess. But I do think at age 33, he's not going to be the guy he was. Two years ago, he's definitely not going to be the guy he was when he was 28 in that last season in Washington. Um, uh-huh. So, and is it
1: safe to say he's just a rental?
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe they think that they can bring him back next year on a cheap deal, like a cheap. Would ball. he come back? Uh-huh. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if he would come back unless you know who. Exa- that's the other thing. What if this does not work at all? Like, what if they, they they're still not going to rebound the ball, even though he's a better rebounder than Ubre? Um, they're still not going to have much of an interior defensive presence. They're still going to. They're not going to win on the road, I wouldn't think. I mean, they, they are 4 and 12 on the road. Um, and what if this doesn't work? I mean, do they even try? Like, their next move, I think, is, is getting a big man, obviously. And I think they might even, if it doesn't work by the trade, Allen, they might, you know, they'll definitely be looking to move like an auto porter in such a deal for a big man. Um, but this this trade, they could have used Oubre and Rivers and maybe Oubre and uh, Pick or Oubre and Port or something. They could have used Oubre in a different deal that I think made more of an impact.
1: I actually, like you said, I like the framework of the original deal before it got canceled because of the Brooks conundrum. I, I agree with you. There was a better way to utilize Ubre who is now going to a spot where, I mean, come on. Phoenix isn't really the land where, you know, young prospects go to flourish. And plus, you have two lottery picks at small forward who are, are going to get either even further squeezed as far as playing time because Uber's is going to play, I'm assuming. I'm assuming the Suns traded for him because, you know, like what we already talked about, strict free agency coming back for Ubre, another player for the Suns to evaluate you know, and see how he plays, but at, at, at what cost? And even if you're going to do that, I would have preferred maybe you send out Josh Jackson or, or another wing, TJ Warren possibly, although he's been playing very well for them, someone that, you know, you move out to clear the log gem a little bit more before you bring in someone else who's going to take further time. I mean, you already yeah. have a plethora of wing players between the three and the four, but this is Phoenix, I can't blame them for being short-sighted, they are the short-sighted sons. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just so weird, man.
0: It did seem like they were in a rush to trade Trevor Reza um, because all the reports, for were, real. all the reports were that there was like this robust trade market and there's so many teams interested. Well, if there's so many teams interested, why don't you take some time to drive up the offers? It's for uh, real, man. <laughs> You have to, this is the best you can come up with. Yeah, you, you've got to really. You've got to try and get like a competent point guard in such a deal for Ariza and for the Wizards. I think they're probably a little bit annoyed that the three team deal blown up because while they're, they're still getting Ariza, at least in the three team deal, they would have gotten another a, a second round pick. Which again, second round picks are really you know mostly miss. Um, but the the Wizards have traded away a lot of their second round picks. I think all of them over the next couple of years. So they would have been nice to get one. Uh, back in the deal for Ariza, for Ariza with Ariza, um, and would have given more of a return for Ubre, who I feel like they're selling. Not, I mean, listen, Ubre is not like this like a game changer. He's been a no. a, a solid negative, you know, in terms of impacting winning. <laughs>
1: solid negative, I like it. <laughs> I but, mean, in terms
0: yeah. of impacting winning, he's been a, a pretty much a negative player over his career. Has not developed a three ball. I think he's actually regressed as a shooter this year, but. I still think they're selling a little bit too low on Ariza or at least selling too low on a guy who's not going to make enough impact. If they had used Uber in a deal like get some a competent big man, like a Trevor Ariza level big man that can help him rebound and give him some interior defense, I think I would like this more. But I just don't think Ariza is going to solve enough of their issues to give up, not give up on Ubre, because they probably decided that they weren't going to pay him, I guess. Maybe they just anticipated that they weren't going to pay him and were like, let's, get, let's just get a rental here. Um, but it's not, in my opinion, it's just not a good enough of a rental. And that's all I'll say.
1: No, I'm right there with you. I agree. And then like you said, it's three-point shooting. It actually it has regrets. It was up, it started at 31% when he first came to the league, dropped down to 28%, went right back up to it went right up to 34 career high for him so far and then dropped right back to 31. So, he's a career 32% three-point shooter. I think that is just what he is. Uh I mean, he's averaging the most points of his career so far. He can go for that. Like you said, he's a, he's a pos he's a solid negative or a positive negative whatever you just said. I like it, and yet he plays most of his minutes at the three, and I just I shudder at the fit. I think I'd prefer Uber over Josh Jackson, but
0: that's not know, saying much.
1: It, 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 that's just what I was about to say. That's, that's not really a ringing endorsement. So interesting, May trade. I really wish the Lakers had gotten more involved. I wish, like you said, the Suns had sat a little bit longer, kind of drove up. The the asking price for Risa, it seemed like they were on Twitter just as much as we were, and we're like oh the trade's imminent, the trade's gonna happen. I mean, the the the, <laughs> the woes and and, and low special hadn't even had already hadn't even yeah they had that trade done before the low special came on. Like wait till that's done and then make a trade. Like that gives you a couple extra hours to reach out to the Rockets who are interested, or KCP was a possible piece. And now, I mean. That would have been more interesting to evaluate. I think as NBA fans, we would have liked it better if Ariza went, let's say, back to the Rockets in some weird way. Could he have done that? Yeah, he wasn't trading. He could have done that. Or if he went to the Lakers or something else. This is such a med trade that does nothing. And for Ariza, I mean, you're not even guaranteed to make the playoffs out there.
0: Not at all. Um, (sighs) All right. Yeah, it's enough ranting for us. Let's get to, um, we're going to do one mailbag question this week because we wanted to talk about the trade and the Dinwiddie (laughs) extension. So we've got a great, great, I mean, of course, Jackson, Jackson Frank, of course, good friend of the show, always comes through with great questions and obviously is a great guest on the show. And he asks, um, pick one to be an all-star, Pascal Siakam, Jason Tatum, Tobias Harris, Chris Middleton, and Mike Conley. So five players that we have an option from. I think this is the hardest question we've had since we started doing the podcast, Um, at least since we started doing the mailbag segments of the podcast. And so I pulled a bunch of these stats from from Thursday morning when I prepared these notes, and I haven't had a time to to check them since. Um, I don't think they've changed too much, but um, Conley, I went to the net ratings, which I think is always a key stat for me. Obviously, I looked at the other stats, but Conley at plus 16.2 is just incredible. Pascal Siakam at plus 17.8, which is ridiculous. Um, Jason Tatum plus 8.4. Middleton plus 6.3. And Harris plus 10. Again, this is when I last checked on Thursday morning. So those are all really, really good numbers um, for their net ratings. Um, Then you look at some of these other stats. And really what it comes down to for me for picking all-stars is you look at the... Counting stats, of course, but really I'm looking at the advanced stats because the advanced stats paint a a much better picture for Siakam than they do his traditional counting stats, right? Siakam is averaging only 14.5 points per game, um, 6.2 rebounds, 2.7 assists. Um, Not going to blow you away when guys like Harris and Conley are averaging over 20 points per game eight rebounds, you know, six assists, et cetera. Um, But the advanced stats paint the best picture for Siakam out of everybody. He's got the highest box plus minus, the highest um, value over replacement player, the highest win shares per 48 minutes, um, the highest true shooting percentage. And then then you look at it, he only has a 17.7 usage percentage because he's not, you know, one of the top two offensive players, obviously, on the team. Kawhi and Kyle Lowry are their big guys. You know, And then you have to factor that in because Mike Conley has basically a 28% usage percentage and he's second in a lot of these metrics. He's second in box plus minus, second in VORP, second in win shares per 48 minutes. He's the best PER. Um, He's got the lowest true shooting. It's slightly below at league average, but not like terrible. Um, And he's got the biggest usage by far out of these five players. He's so important to the Grizzlies' success. So with that being said, I think... For me, it's really hard to separate Siakam and Conley. I think they're 1A and 1B. I think I'm going to give the slight edge to Conley for how big of a role he has and just how crucial he is for the Grizzlies' success. But it is really hard to answer. I I really think that almost all these players, like, if you look at the numbers, I feel like all these players, you can make a strong, strong case for being an all-star. But I think I'll go with Conley because the advanced metrics are closest to Siakam. The counting stats are obviously really good, and he has the biggest role, and he's doing it well enough for a team that's winning on the Grizzlies.
1: You literally took my entire argument. I'm so mad at you. No, (laughs) uh, I mean, you had the numbers I was going to read on Pascal and then you had the same answer I was going to do. It was a great question. I was going to go kindly just because you're right. He's playing great ball on a surprising Memphis squad uh, that I mean, I was all down on and I'm sure more of the general NBA media was not exactly big fans of. And then he comes out here and you're right. Solid, great numbers. And he's long overdue. And I think the All-Star game is, to a lesser extent, about narratives than, let's say, you know, the MVP award or anything. But come on now. The dude's been long overdue, and it's not like if he doesn't get it this year, it would be – if he, it's not like if he did get it this year, it would be because of, like, a legacy All-Star game. No, he really earned this one, you know? So, uh, yeah, I, I'm all there for – or he really will earn this one if he gets it, and I think he should. You already went all to the numbers, so I'm not really going to go into that just – I'm mad that I have to agree with you because, you know, you like some diversity here in these these mailbag answers. But uh, I'm right there with you. He deserves it.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a tough question. I honestly had not really – I almost forgotten or not really looked into how well Conley has been playing before this this question kind of prompted me to look into all all five of these guys' numbers. Um, But all five of them are just having, I mean, great years. I mean, Jason Tatum – is, you know, has really bounced back since that kind of slow start. You know, he's shooting above 40% from three. He's not taking a lot of threes. Obviously, you'd still want him to take more than four and a half per game if he's such a good shooter. Um, But he's even bounced back himself. Siakam, of course, you know, under the radar in terms of his impact on winning. Um, Chris Middleton, you know, he's, you know, 39% three-point shooter, um, 17 points a game, six six rebounds, four assists. You know, Tobias Harris averaging 21 points, eight rebounds, two and two point two assists. Again, another 39 percent three point shooter. Conley's only shooting 34.5 percent from three. Um, you. But you know he's putting up the numbers, and he's got the biggest role. He's the most important player. I think. I think. Yeah, he's the most important player out of, oh, out of these pants five. Down. Um, and that's what pushes him over the edge for me. But a great question and really a tough one. Um, and I think I'd have Siakam second, even though I worry about Siakam squeezing in because he's definitely not going to get the fan vote. Um, well, you know, sometimes there are those fans, hey, the sometimes, fans. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes those are like like those uh, cult players that have those fans that turn out. Like remember, like Zaza Pachulia was like third oh, in the, voting. Yeah, all of Georgia behind him. Um, of Georgia. Yeah. So maybe he'll do that. But the other thing is he's going to have to rely on the coach um slash media i think vote 25 percent. i think they count for their vote but i still don't think i'm gonna see him in but yeah i'm gonna go with conley
1: yeah tatum would definitely get more of an edge over siakam if two and head to head even though i think siakam is just a ton more qualified not that he's Tatum's not playing well but you get it but yeah so uh yeah let's let's uh move on i guess from there right that's the one question we pretty much nailed it yep did get it got it good
0: Yep, let's move on to uh, some awards. We're doing our, it's a little bit slightly past quarter season awards, but we're going to call it the quarter season awards. Um, And let's start off with, let's start off with Defensive Player of the Year. Um, And so what I did when preparing notes for this was I basically came up with a couple of candidates for each award. Um, So my main candidates for Defensive Player of the Year were Robert Covington, uh, Paul Marcosol, not Paul Gasol. Oh God, um, and Paul George. That's why I said Paul. <laughs> I so, was like, "What?" <laughs> Paul George, Marcosol, and Robert Covington were my three main candidates. And I'm not gonna, you know, make anyone wait for my answer. My answer so far is Robert Covington um, Whoa. leads the league in defensive real plus-minus. Marcosol is second, and really, a, l- a bunch of these numbers were again pulled. Um, I think on Thursday or Wednesday night. So, the Wolves before the Jimmy Butler trade were dead last. They were 30th in defensive rating. Since the trade, they are second in defensive rating. Um, and no one's saying anything about Sarge, you know, changing them defensively, you know, like Covington is. Obviously, we know Covington is, has been known for his evens for a while. Sarge is a solid defender, gives effort, but nothing like Covington. Um, and they're getting more effort from other guys as well. But look at these numbers Covington is number two in deflections per game, he was number one in steals at the time of the stat. He was number 16 in blocks for a wing, which is really impressive. And really, you look at the other numbers, opponents shoot almost 10% worse when guarded by him. Like, that is an elite number of how how much of an impact he has. Um, If you look at the stocks of the three, steals plus blocks, a little bit of a fun stat there. Um, Bill Simmons, shout out. (laughs) He has the most stocks of the three. Um, He gets 3.5 stocks per game, um, and George and Gasol both have three per game. Um, And so I wanted to... I came into this, you know, with with the clear idea that Covington was going to be my pick. And then I wanted to look at the other numbers as well. I mean, George definitely has a case because he is the best defender on the best defense in the league, which is, you know, one of those things, like, if you're looking for this award, best defender on best defense, that's kind of a big thing right there. And Gasol, meanwhile, is anchoring the fourth-ranked defense. Um, Now, I looked at the on-off numbers, and last time I checked – The the Grizzlies only defend two points per 100 possessions better with Gasol on the floor, which is not like a crazy elite number. And the defense is actually a little bit worse with Paul George on the floor. I know. Minus 0.7 points per 100 possessions with Paul George. The Minnesota defense is 7.7 points per 100 possessions better with Robert Covington. That's an elite number and obviously the best of the three. Um... Like I mentioned, defensive real plus minus, Covington is first, Gasol is second out of the entire league, George is 15th out of the league, but he's also second among small forwards. Um, Funny side stat is that of the the top 15 players in the league of defensive real plus minus, only George and Covington are the only two non-big men in the league. It's always all centers and power forwards. Um... So ultimately because of those numbers because of how much of a direct impact Covington has had on the Timberwolves defense, how he's doing on a, you know, per possession basis, how he's making opponents shoot 10% worse, number 2 in deflections, top 5 in steals, almost top 15 in blocks, the most stocks, the biggest impact on his team's defense. I'm going to go with Covington. I know it's kind of hard for him. He, he was good in Philly, obviously a lot he had a lot more defensive talent around him in Philly, but basically if you take, especially if we're evaluating since the trade, he has been, I think, the most impactful defender in the league. So I think I would go, I would go Covington, then George, then Gasol.
1: See, I have to reverse that. I would go George. I, I know you mentioned the numbers, and yes, Covington has some good ones, and you, you already mentioned, you know, some of Paul George's as well, but... The 101 defensive rating, I think there's a lot of noise in the numbers with him on and off as far as defensively, kind of like there was a little bit of, a couple of years ago, I think, with Kawhi on that yeah, end with the Spurs. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to read too deep into that, but my argument's simple. I'm one of the better defenders on one of the best teams defensively in the NBA. I think you give a lot of noise, too. And I give him more credit, although it's not exactly a, a traditional argument for defensive player of the year. I think it's the fact that he's one of the best defenders on the load that he has. Yeah, uh, I I really give a lot of uh, a lot more points I guess theoretically to those two way players that are your offensive fulcrum along with Russell Westbrook on the offensive end, but yes, also a lockdown defender in his own right. And I think some of Paul George's um, mess. I mean, he's been a great defender and been known for it, but the reason why he probably hasn't gotten as much uh, well, he's gotten fair recognition, but as much as I would imagine him to get is because of the role. I mean, he's a great two way player, but defensively, I think it gets overlooked sometimes what he is to that um, in defensive wind shares uh, among leaders up there. You already mentioned, I already mentioned defensive rating. Um, like you said, the on-off numbers are there still percentage. I mean, again, other advanced stats defensively where he's right there at the top, he's not the first player on most of the list, but he's like right there. And I think having that impact all over the floor and being the assigned stopper, especially Roberson out where he's had to stop, you know, the, the, the top wing players and do it on the other end gives me, the the edge for Paul George. Not that Covington hasn't been big of anything, like you said, more in fact, impactful defensively as an individual, probably in, in in this case. But I think George has a tremendous load, and what he's doing on the defensive end as well, in addition to his offense, is kind of what I factor in. So not a traditional kind of requirement there, but I really think that uh Paul George has been very very impactful on the defensive end, and that would be DPOY for me.
0: Yeah, it's so hard to like try and take this award like. And just analyze it like in in a vacuum of just like what the defense is, because you have to factor in that because that George is playing this level of defense while being a much you know more important offensive player and mm-hmm. having a bigger offensive role for the thunder um listen I, I have George a close second and he got a he's got a really clear case he's the best defender on the best defense um, that's pretty straightforward I mean that's. The MVP used to be the best player on the best team. You know, defensive player, it would make sense that it's the best defensive player on the best defense. Um, Now, again, if we're only taking the Wolves since the trade, they are, I think, a top three defense still, or maybe a top five defense. So Covington also has a great case since the trade. But um, I'm going to stick with Covington for now. I feel like once we update this, I, I actually I feel very confidently that once we update this for you know, midseason awards, um, I'm going to have George hope, unless he you know slips off or the Thunder slip, you know, slip off a little bit. But I think that the Wolves are not going to defend like this moving forward. Um, and I think Covington will, will still be a great defender. But I think that the Wolves defense as a team will fall down and the Thunder and Paul George will still stay as a top three defense. And I think George will surpass him when we do our midseason awards. But at the, at the quarter season, I'm going to stick with Covington for now.
1: Okay, see that's that's all. That's solid. I like it. All right, so I'm gonna go to another one that's interesting. There's one I really want to get to in a second, but I think this one's also we're we kind of agree with some of these. Rookie of the Year, uh, I got Luka Doncic. Yep. I mean, I mean, it's not really all that hard. I can't even begin to make a case for uh, DeAndre Ayton, which I was trying to do as you remember at the off season and during our uh, our NBA uh, NBA podcast uh, training camp and all. But I don't even really need the numbers, which was basically 18, almost seven rebounds and four assists a game on 36% shooting from three and a steal a game, basically. And there's some more advanced numbers. I'm not going to get into it. He's clearly the most impactful player right now on a surprising Dallas team. Uh, I can only remember him taking out the Rockets not even a week and a half ago. Uh, just an 11-0 run by himself. Some moves he's been making, the poise. I mean, there were so many questions for myself, including, oh, you know, transitioning athletically into the NBA, and you know, is will he create enough separation off the dribble, and is he athletic enough, and is he this, and is he that, and he's only 19, and you know, the Euro League and yada 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 yada. But the point being, the dude's just a monster, and uh, uh, he 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 is already ready-made of what he is as just not a complete basketball player, but a very very good basketball player, and. I, I, there, there's not really much competition there for me I mean Trey Young's okay uh, stats aren't all the way quite there and it is Atlanta as far as record and everything they're there DeAndre Ayton gives you a double-double but I mean come on it's, you know what they're doing he is clearly the rookie of the year I don't think there's much of an argument otherwise
0: you didn't mention the guy who was in second place jaron jackson Jared, yeah,
1: I, I think <laughs> I to, see i was trying to think light years ahead i'm gonna take myself some credit for that you know why eric because i knew you were gonna mention it so i was leading it off okay
0: <laughs> this this um this one might oh, be our okay. quickest award i think maybe most improved <laughs> might be a little bit of a quicker discussion because i've got a clear choice for that um yeah. but it's luka Doncic, best player on a playoff team which is surprising um listen of course not only is he a rookie, he's going to struggle with defense. I think he's going to struggle with defense for, the, for his entire career. He's going to struggle with turnovers throughout his career. Um, he's obviously had some rough shooting nights recently, but he's still putting up insane production. You mentioned the stats. He's playing over 32 minutes a game with a big role. He has a 26% usage percentage for a rookie, and even with that high usage, he has basically a league average true shooting percentage. So he's basically league average efficiency on a huge role for a rookie, which is very impressive. Um, I don't want to take anything away from Jaron Jackson. I think he's, he's absolutely no joke. He's definitely second. Um, if you actually compare the two players, all literally all of the advanced metrics favor Jaron Jackson over Luka Doncic, but Doncic's role how he's doing it, how he's doing it in the clutch, how he's leading a Mavericks team to a playoff spot. I don't think they're going to stay there, but they've been there so far. Um, they basically have the same net rating. Um, Doncic has actually been a positive net player, a positive player with his net rating. It's it's only plus 0.1, but rookies are almost never positive impact players. I mean, especially rookies at these, at these ages that sure. these guys are. Um, so it's definitely Doncic. Jackson, I think, is a clear-cut second, and he's definitely, I still think he's going to be a, a top prospect and probably the second best player of this draft class, if not the best player. Uh, but right now, it's Doncic, and I think I think over this entire season, I feel confident saying it's going to be Doncic. But.
1: Yeah, and, and keep your an eye out for Colin Sexton, y'all. You
0: know. He's kidding. playing better, <laughs> though. He is playing better. I will give him that. He,
1: no, no, he is. I, I definitely am glad. I mean, I still don't think he justifies his position in the lottery so far, but Definitely way better, a lot more confidence on a shot. I just want to make a Colin Sexton joke. I mean, I'm still behind you, buddy. I'm still in, in the doghouse with you. Uh, <laughs> let's go on to that uh, one that you were just mentioning, the, the second quickie as far as uh, awards go.
0: Yeah, most improved, I think, is going to – I think for me it's a pretty clear Pascal Siakam. Um, just the comparisons to last year, the points. He went from 7.3 to 14.5 points per game, basically doubled that. Uh, rebounds, he went from 4.5 per game to 6.2 assists, he went from 2 to 2.8 per game. Steals have increased, the blocks have increased, the 3-point percentage has increased, the true shooting percentage has increased. Um, oh my god, you like all... Oprah. you get an increase! <laughs> you get an increase! <laughs> uh, nearly all of the advanced metrics um, are career eyes for him. As I mentioned in that mailbag question, he has a, almost a plus 18 net rating. <laughs> um, wow. He's the third best or third most important player on the team with the best record in the league. That, I think that factors in here as well i mean the way he plays is probably you know non-traditional people don't really know him um but listen he handles the ball in transition he finds open shooters and cutters in the half court he brings the effort defensively he plays within the team he plays within his role and he plays it very well this this award always goes to kind of young players or players that you know clearly have potential, and I think that Siakam will surprise a lot of people and have surprised a lot of people com, you know, coming out of nowhere. I mean, if you ask the average basketball fan that's not really on NBA Twitter, they don't even know who Pascal Siakam is, I would say. Maybe they, maybe they would know. They've heard the name on the national TV broadcast recently. But, I mean, he's putting up the numbers. He's in his third year, so it makes sense for him in terms of career progression to win the award. Um, I, I think his role, his importance to the Raptors, and the fact that basically all of his numbers, both counting stats and advanced... Are basically career highs, It's it was pretty clearly Siakam for me.
1: Oh, yeah. I was going to say, you know, NBA fans or the ones that aren't, that don't know him outside of, you know, the knowledge ones and the Twitterverse, probably think of some kind of French dish, you know? <laughs> I'll have a side of that Pascal Siakam. Anyway, uh, as far as a player I was going to nominate, it was Siakam for me as well. No-brainer, no really. Um, he's been out for a month and he was injured um, because of that dislocation, dislocated foot and everything. I was really going to make a strong case for Karis Silvert. Uh, yeah. Just everything across the board – points, rebounds, um, a blocks, steals, you know, free throw rate, is effective field goal percentage, everything increased before he went down, and those numbers are probably going to stay away for a bit, and he was just been taking over, a couple of game winners down the stretch, clearly their go-to player on the offensive end, um, it was a breakout year for him, I think if he continued that play, and I think if he wasn't injured, he would definitely be doing so, then he would make a strong case for it, and it would have been very interesting to see a Siakam versus Levert kind of battle in that space for most improved, because... He's really kind of broke out. I mean, if you look at those numbers, everything across the board's increased. And the ones that haven't, like assists, are are just barely off. I think that would have increased more with more time. Same with the fact the field goal percentage already at almost a career high for him. Um, just by percentage points, like it literally just by that. I mean, he's he's really been a player who I was I wasn't on the bandwagon for because I didn't even anticipate this type of season coming from him. But in 14 games, I mean, it was a heck of a strong 14 games. So. Yeah. But Siakam runs away with that for
0: certain. Let's go to I think a very interesting one. Um, still one to kinda of figure out the clear cut you know, final list of candidates, but six man of the year. Um, mm-hmm. I came up I identified four candidates and I'm obviously gonna miss somebody that's having a I great uh um, waiting. I'm gonna to i I'm probably gonna miss someone key. But my four candidates were or are Derek Rose, Montrez Harrell. Julius Randle and Spencer Dinwiddie. Those are my four candidates. Obviously, I'm probably going to forget somebody. Just say it. Who, who it is?
1: I mean, okay. So this is one I was going to argue with, but I was hoping that someone other than me saw Dennis Schroeder. And I,
0: I I thought about him. Um, and you know what? I will. I mean, the numbers I'm, look
1: at. I mean... Listen,
0: I will definitely hear that out. <laughs> I want to hear. I want to hear that out. But uh, okay. let me mention. So those are my four. And I guess really it kind of makes sense if I have four. I might as well should extend it to five. But I don't know why I didn't. Um. So, Harold. <laughs> <laughs> Harold is. It's really tough. I think I want to still say that it's Harrell right now, and it's a little bit hard to make a, a great case for him, given that basically, I mean, for the longest time, Six men has just been, you know, put up points as a guard on a good team. That's basically what it is. It's been, it's been score. We don't care about your efficiency. We don't care how many shots you take. Put up, you know, 17 plus per game off the bench on a good team. You'll get, you'll get, you know, in the in the running for Six men of the Year. So Harrell obviously is a big man is definitely a different mold. But per 36 minutes, which is not always a great stat to look at, but 21 points per game, nine and a half rebounds, 1.3 steals, and 2.2 blocks per 36 minutes. Like, those are absurd numbers for him. Um, And I think I'll still go with Harrell, but I tell you this, Spencer Dinwiddie... His, I, I mean, I decided on Harrell a couple days ago, and since then, Dinwiddie dropped the 39 and then the 29 uh, against the Wizards. He is jumping. He is, as I mentioned before, he is skyrocketing up my ballot. And I think by the time we do midseason awards, if he keeps playing like this and the Nets keep winning at a reasonable rate, I know they're, they're obviously the worst team among these players considered, um, that he's going to skyrocket up my ballot. But um, I'm going to go with Harrell. I think he still he doesn't have the profile of a six-man of the year, um, but he's been the most impactful, I think, if you look beneath the surface of his traditional counting stats, which aren't like eye popping, um, because basically on the surface he is putting up 15 points, 6.7 rebounds, 1.6 blocks. Um, he's got the best efficiency of of all these players, but he only plays 25 minutes a game, which is the wor- the lowest of this of these players. Doesn't start, only takes nine shots per game, which is significantly lower than everyone else on this list. Um, but again, he he has the most impact based on these advanced metrics because he leads in value over replacement player, he leads in box plus minus, he leads in win shares per 48 minutes, he leads in PER, he leads in true shooting percentage, and he is a key cog on a top five team in the West. I think the Clippers fell to fifth tonight. Um, That's good enough for me, I think. Obviously, I think that a lot of people on the surface might look at at a guard like a Dinwiddie or a Rose or even a Randall who's basically another big man who's putting up more impressive numbers than, than Harrell. But you look at, like, Randall puts up, you know, over four more shot attempts per game. He plays a couple more minutes per game. He's more of a featured player on the Pelicans, while Harrell just kind of gets his points and his stats, you know, in the flow of the team. Um, so I looked at the advanced metrics, and I wanted to go with the guy who's been the most impactful and kind of break away from this traditional mold of it has to kind of be a scoring guard off the bench. And I'm going to stick with Harrell for now, but I don't feel great about it moving forward.
1: I like the case for Harrow. I'm right with you. He's been playing very well. Um, like I said, the rise of Dinway, as long as uh, <clears throat> just slight decline. I think with the minutes and the fact that Harrow, I think, has been dealing with a shoulder injury. As mentioned, it's been kind of, uh, you know, oh, excuse me. <coughs> oh, there we go. I don't know what that was. <laughs> anyway, um, aside, along with the fact that, yeah, he you know, a lot of minutes for him and, and the long, he's, you know, tailed off just a little bit in production. However, yeah, it, it, it's a great. It's a great case, and he's been playing very well. I mean, surprising well for the Clippers. And every time I see him play like that, I wish he was still in Houston. I mean, I could only imagine him having that pick-and-roll chemistry, you know, with, with Harden and them as an as energy big, who would get a lot of minutes behind Capella. Okay, going on, though. Um, hmm. My guy, Dennis Schroeder, is the argument I'm going to make. I think – and you mentioned scoring guards off the bench. I think Schroeder's doing a little bit of everything so far, and I think that's what – is 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 big for me where you know he was already starting when russell was out early with his injury then russell came back and was out again for a stint with the, you know battling injuries and just came back in shape and he's been playing very well this week just under 30 minutes a night you got your 16 points you got your four rebounds you got your four assists steady guard play 42 percent field goal percentage 34 percent from three solid as far as that's concerned bringing a a surprising defensive intensity and keeping that same frenetic energy and pace that Russell would when Russell's in. So you don't really get a drop-off there. And for the way he's been playing, especially on a team like OKC, which has had guys like Campaign, Norris Cole, uh, (laughs) um, Samash Christian, as backup guards before Dennis Schroeder, uh, it's it's, it's nice to see a starting-caliber player who's been playing pretty solid coming off the bench and putting up, I mean, decent... He's counting stats. But I think, yes, while he hasn't been probably as impactful as a Harold, you know, more of a surprise type of bench player, or, you know, um, other nominees, we already mentioned Dinwiddie, who's been playing very well. I think you have to take into account, and this is what I'm doing team success, and the fact that he's had to come under fire a lot, as far as not under fire for me or anything, but as far as Russell being out and you having to start in his wake and and be that same player. And this is a team that's right in the upper echelon in the West. As we talked about, great defensive team. He's taking nothing off the table in that regard. Offensively, playing solid, and I think there's something to be said for that.
0: I definitely like the idea of Schroeder as a six man player of the year. <laughs> or like the idea of him as being six man of the year. I think is it sounds good. It's listen. It's it's like listen. I, I, now Schroeder has a complicated case for me because he's definitely got the counting stats. He's definitely got like the eye test impact on the Thunder, how he stabilized their bench. They've been good without Russ or good enough without Russ. Um, he's putting up the, the points, 17 points per game, five assists, four rebounds. Pretty, you know, I would say it's, it's below average efficiency, but he's got a big role. I mean, he's 26% usage is would be only second to Randall out of the candidates that I mentioned. Um, and then you look, he's, he's clearly the worst in terms of the advanced metrics I mentioned, like box plus minus, uh, value over replacement player, win shares, um, PER he's the lowest and yet he does have a plus 5.5 net rating. So he he is making he's been a positive player, you know, for the most part when he's been on the floor for them. And I, you know it's kind of different to evaluate him because of how bad the Thunder point guard situation, backup point guard situation that, has yeah. been. So maybe that boosts him up a little bit and, and you know builds up his case a little bit more. Um I would like I would like to add him formally to my five-man ballot, (laughs) but I'm going to stick with Rand... I'm not Randall. I'm going to stick with Harold for now. I do hear the case. I do think that Schroeder's positive net rating is a good push for him, and the counting stats are a good push for him. I think he... Honestly, I would not be surprised if he ended up with more votes than a guy like a Harrell does by the end of the year, um, or even in the final voting. Um, But for the quarter-season awards, I'm going to stick with Harold. I'll add Schroeder to my list of five candidates, and I'm really interested to see how... The two bigs, Randall and Harrell, fare over the next over the you know next quarter of the season when we do our midseason updates, uh, and how you know guys like Dinwiddie and Rose and Schroeder do you know handling their load, handling their usage, how their teams do that can play a, a role obviously because as much as Dinwiddie's playing well, I don't think he'll get enough votes compared to a guy like Schroeder if the Thunder are a top three, top two team in the West and the Nets are out of the playoff picture. I think that does subconsciously. subconsciously factor into people's minds. So, yeah, uh, that I'll, is a factor. Yeah, so I'll stick with Harold for now.
1: Okay. Sounds like a plan. We'll keep it right on moving. Let's do uh coach of the year.
0: All right, let's do it. What's your um, uh, what's your ballot? What, what are your candidates?
1: Okay. So, for me, <laughs> it's going to be funny, don't laugh though. Uh, <laughs> Luke Walton is there.
0: <laughs> okay, My okay. Uh,
1: not, um, yeah, I think just what he's been doing under pressure with the Lakers. And the fact that, yeah, they are playing well. And, and how much of that is LeBron James it is obviously always the great debate. But I think it takes a certain type of, of, of metal to kind of hold up and play under, um, you know, with all that hoopla and be successful so far. So I'm just throwing him in there, okay? Uh, Doc Rivers is early consideration for the Clippers playing over their heads. I do expect that to tail off as the Clippers play tails off. Although if they make the playoffs, that's someone to keep in mind. Mike Budenholzer, what he's done with Milwaukee, I mean, it's been great. You have to give credit to that. And what credit to due, especially with the way he's totally revamped their offensive game, made players flourish. Brooke Lopez just looks like a star. I'm not saying that Budenholzer was directly behind that development, as Lopez already showed that. But, I mean, you can go down with Chris Middleton, Giannis still being an ascendant star. There's so many other players you could break down for a case for Mike. Um I was going to go with Dwayne Casey, and this is why, and only because I thought they were overachieving against Detroit. But now, you know, ooh, excuse me. <clears throat> I see it was really the benefit of the schedule. Um, they're going to be a scrappy team, but there's there's no boats for me there. Um, ultimately, those are my candidates, and my winner would be Nick Nurse. Um, I'm sure you have someone similar there. But, you know, the trade happens. He comes in, the turnaround in Toronto, and the fact that they're just such a well-oiled machine, and even some of that you could say, okay, listen, it's pretty much the same team from last year. You bring it back, it's just a nurse at the helm. They already had the best year in Raptors history last year, so it was just a new coach in a different environment. But they have the second-best offense, eighth-best defense, and they had to bring in a major player and another player who's taking a major role in Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green, which not only shook up the culture of the team from a certain respect, but it's also a play-style switch. You know, uh, 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 um, what is it called? They, um, yeah, play-style switch, a culture switch, a, weight, a personnel change. Because now you bring those two players in, and you only lost one player in Derozan. I mean, Jakob Perl as well. But I'm saying, as far as the starting lineup, where you insert these two guys in. So to manage personalities, to manage, you know, the relationship between Lowry and 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 um, Masai Ujiri and whatever that is, the tension there. Bringing in Kawhi, dealing with all that, and still putting out a formidable a formidable defense and a, a more than serviceable offense, which has been killing teams even with their best player off the floor, Kawhi Leonard. I don't really think – again, there's not much of an argument there. And you can go advanced stats. I have my uh, clean-the-glass numbers up for Nick Nurse already as far as the Rockets' production, just offensively and defensively and everything. But it's not you, – you can close your eyes and just pick Nick Nurse just because of how well they've been playing. Best team in the NBA, I'd say, even over the Warriors at the moment while they come to full strength and all that he's done to really kind of diversify that.
0: Yeah, so I will only add one candidate to the list that you haven't mentioned. I think Mike Bologna deserves a lot of credit for what he's done because, considering I got it right. their injuries, they're still percentage points ahead for first in the West. Still, um, nineteen and nine with the injuries they've had, um, they still got. I think they've got the fourth youngest team. Their top three players are all twenty-three and younger. Like they're winning with youth. Um, they're playing hard. I mean, first of all, if you if I had told you that. We are now, what is it, December 15th? Of course, we're over 30 games into the season for almost every team. The Nuggets have the fifth-ranked defense. If I had told you that, you would have bet so much money that I, that I would be, you know, that you, you would have bet me so much money that that wouldn't be the case.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. They we the turned the 94-feet report to, like, the Corbin 3 and D report or something. <laughs> I would have banked on the name. You right.
0: <laughs> exactly. That, that is shocking to me. So because of that. I definitely want to give Mike Nolan a huge amount of credit, especially because he got the extension before the season that we all kind of questioned, and you know there was pressure on them, and he kind of turned it around, and now Denver's the best record in the West. Um, So let's see how they do. Um, And ultimately, I do agree, it's Nick Nurse. Um, I think there are a lot of great candidates. Like you mentioned, you basically pointed out the picture. Doc Rivers has done a great job. The Clippers are top five in the West without a star. They've been really impressive. They're kind of this underdog team. They're falling down um, a little bit. They're seventeen and twelve now. They've lost three in a row. They're four and six in the last ten. So, we'll see what they what they continue to do. Um, Budenholzer, I mean, what a job he's done modernizing this Bucks team. Um, second seed in the East. They have got the second ranked offense, the eighth ranked defense, the second best net rating. Um, actually, it's the first best net rating now that the, the Raptors lost last night. Um, just incredible, and he set them up for, for future success as well. I think we all expected the Bucks to take a step. I don't think we expected them to play at basically a sixty-win level of play. That's basically what their point differential is. Um, that's truly elite. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with what I think most people are picking is, is Nick Nurse, um, second best offense for the Raptors, eighth best defense, second best net rating. Uh, You know, they're on pace for, I think, around 61 wins or 60 wins. um, Again, which is only one more than last year, but considering the changes they made... Um, how they're changing their system a little more, they're implementing more switching, he's made the move to put a at center, a starting center, basically full-time, and, and moved Valanciunas to the bench who unfortunately got hurt um, against the Warriors, uh, but that, that's worked out great for them. The way they've played without Kawhi has been great, they haven't had Kawhi for I think eight games of the year um, Lowry was just brutally cold for a couple of games but they just kept on winning for the most part that that really, what was really impressive to me was that back-to-back where they destroyed the Clippers and then they went into Golden State on the second night ever back-to-back without Kawhi and destroyed the Warriors. Um, that was just so impressive to me. Um, and the way he set them up for kind of future slash postseason success, you know, like you managed managing the p- possible tension with Lowry in the front office, managing that Kawhi situation where, you, you know, you focus on this season, but you also focus on making sure you recruit him for next year as well. Um, all the stuff he's had to balance the pressure of entering a job where the team won 59 games and the previous coach won Coach of the Year and then was fired, and the disappointment that this team had, and after making that trade for Kawhi uh, and Danny Green, All those things factored in and how much the success they've had and how they look like the clear-cut best team in the East right now. um, I'll go with Nurse for now. Um, And I think we'll see. I think there are other candidates that could jump up and maybe the Raptors slip a little bit, and that kind of hurts Nurse's case. But if this maintains, if they maintain being the best team in the East um, at this level of play and the other teams kind of maintain where they're playing, I think it's going to be Nurse for the entire season. But at this point, for me, it's definitely Nurse.
1: Yeah. Not much competition there, I think. Although all these other coaches have done fine jobs, but I think that that inner turmoil in Toronto, those kind of the service as well as how strong they've played and responded to it with Nurse at the helm, clearly takes it away.
0: So it is time <sighs> for oh, the no. big juicy award, of course MVP, the big award that everyone talks about every year, um, and recently, basically ever since Curry. You know, had the back-to-back MVPs. We've had some great years of, of a lot of potential good candidates for this award. Um, so, my four, my top four candidates were, were Giannis, Steph, LeBron, and Kawhi. Those are my top four um, based on team success, how those individual players are doing. That's basically a combination of how I got the candidates. So I looked at the numbers, and Giannis has the edge in pretty much most of the advanced stats. He's got the edge in box plus minus. He's got the edge in win shares per 48 minutes. He's got the edge in value over replacement player. He's got the edge in PER. Um, similar usage. He's not. He's a second in true shooting percentage efficiency. Um, he's got the most overall win shares, and he's on the team with the second best record in the East. That that's a big deal. Um, Curry's case. Uh, You know, he's been – really what hurts Curry is is how many games he's missed, but he has a plus 11 net rating last time I checked. Uh, The Warriors obviously still elite, and he is second in a lot of these advanced stats. I mean, he's second in win shares per 48 minutes, uh, second in PER, first in true shooting percentage, second in usage percentage. He's got a great case. (laughs) Obviously, all these players have a great case. Um, LeBron. Big load for a Lakers team that's been very impressive so far. He only has a plus 4.4 net rating last time I checked. Um, But, you know, he's leading this Lakers team to basically around 50 wins. They're basically a 50 win pace right now um, with all this youth around him, all this kind of these role players around him. And he is second in box plus minus. He's second in value over replacement player. He's third in PER. Third in true shooting percentage, he's got the highest usage percentage. He's got the biggest role, um, biggest load, I should say. Um, yep. He's he's doing a lot for them. And then Kawhi, again, he's missed a bunch of games, which hurts him like Curry. He's he's actually played, he's played four games more than Curry, so it's really not that much of a difference. Uh, he is basically, again, he he's third in the winchairs per forty eight metric but he's dead last in box plus minus, he's last in value over replacement player, he's last in PER, last in true shooting, last in usage, so he's, Kawhi is a clear fourth to me at this moment, based on how much he's missed, and these three players are having better seasons than him on on really good teams, it's not like these guys are on teams that are like hovering around 500, so it then comes down to Giannis, Curry, and LeBron, I'm going to, Hurt Curry's cat status a little bit because again, when when we get to the best of the best of these MVP candidates, then the yep. games played does factor in because you have to be available to truly so, be the MVP. So I think of course, yeah, exactly. So between Giannis and LeBron, I'm going with Giannis for now because he he beats him in all he beats him in all the advanced metrics and the Bucks have a slightly better record than the Lakers. I know they play in the East, um, but the Bucks have been really impressive. Um, Giannis has no three-point shot. He basically all scores, basically, in the paint, which is incredible if you think about it. Um, but his edge in the advanced metrics, his his team's record, have, his team having a better record, combine the two, as of right now, a quarter season of the way, it's Giannis for me. I think if the Lakers get a better record than the Bucks, or Giannis' play falls off or even just the Bucks fall off um, to kind of like the Lakers' level of play, then we're looking at LeBron passing him. Or well, maybe if Curry, you know, stays healthy the rest of the year, Curry passes him. Or if Kawhi... Gets healthier and the Raptors, or he get his numbers get a little bit better in terms of the advanced metrics. We're looking at Kawhi. So at this point, it's so hit or miss, like in terms of how flexible this could change. But I'm going to go with Giannis, then LeBron, then Steph, then Kawhi for now.
1: Yeah, I'm going to flip flop and put LeBron over Giannis. Um, like you said, more success. I do knock a little bit on Giannis because the Heat, the East. I think that does have a standing. I mean, the Lakers have mm-hmm. played a rough stretch of games. Also, I'm giving LeBron, and this is where narrative comes in for me. All the numbers and everything he's doing in year 16 on a team that, I mean, come on. If they're not, they're on a 50-win pace. I don't think anyone really saw that. We were thinking, you know, well, actually, let's not over-exaggerate, Corbin. I'm sure more than a few uh, people saw maybe a 50-win season. I'm not sure if they're the most rational of them, but more than a few saw that happening. However, I'm, this is a team, come on, we all had questions about this going in. And then there's still a lot of ball to be played, but how the roster would fit with these young guys and the space cadets and everything going on here. And LeBron's still cranking out this production in year 16, uh, 28, 7 and 7. This is the least amount of minutes he played in his career um, at 35 even right now currently. Last I've just checked. Uh, best effective field goal percentage or second best. Wait, yeah, I'm looking on him. My fault. Uh, top ten as far as in his 16 years, as far as um, highest effective field goal percentage. You've already gone over some of the advanced numbers and where he falls in line with the other candidates. So I'm not really going to argue that. But I think all of this combined, the way he's getting it done, um, I think the triple double he just had. the so time am recording this, definitely helps the case for me. But you just have to consider it for what he's doing on an overachieving Lakers team by 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 some measure, and how an advanced basketball age that he is that we can even still have this conversation to him being the top so if we're gonna have that over Giannis, i think Giannis is clearly there um but i'll give it to lebron i did not put steph curry in not only i mean because he's had great shooting numbers obviously when he's not in the game the warriors are a totally different team but i knocked him heavily because you have to play the game same with Kawhi. i had basically lebron and Giannis is the two players i was heavily considering and i ironically had james harden in there not as someone i would seriously consider but if we're just going to go off of numbers and stats i mean the 50-point W's had, him playing, you know, seeming like the James Harden of old, I, I thought I would at least put an eye out there to, like, put a thumbnail in for the future. And then Anthony Davis, monster numbers, but the team is not good. But I thought, hey, I would give him some credit because I'm partial to players who are just on bad teams that are still great players. You know what I mean? I was making the same case when we recorded last year for Russell Westbrook, even though it was a lesser charge. And I'll still go down to my grave saying that Russell Westbrook deserved the 2016-2017 MVP, <laughs> Um, and I will just show you the roster And just ignore every other argument Anyone else comes to me with And that is why I'm partial to those types of players In an MVP race But I know narrative swings it I think LeBron has the better narrative Giannis has been playing MVP worthy um, A lot of that I think is just on his natural development But I also think some of it's the coach And some of it's where he's playing in the East right now Even with the better record So that'll be my argument But clearly it's tight You can make one either way And it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds That's a tricky one And that is that is the trickiest one we've had honestly
0: i mean it's it's hard it, of course, it's only been a quarter season, so most guys yeah. have played less than thirty games, which is not a huge sample like we know the, we true. know who these players are, but you never know a team would go on a ten game winning streak and the player could be going off you know every night, and then that boosts their their status you know for mvP um Yeah. Anthony Davis is up there with the numbers. The team is struggling. Same for James Harden, who, listen, quietly, no one is talking about it. He is playing, you know, his offensive level, I think, is is at the same level as as last year, if not better recently. Um, His previous, his last 10 games, 33 points per game, nine assists, six rebounds, almost two steals per game, over 48% shooting from the field. All they have to do is win more games and he'll get more attention. I think because he won last year, he'll never get, he won't even get to the top three by the end of the year of the voting. Um, because he won last year, and because of this, I think they're never going to be, they're never going to have an elite enough record. I think they can get, uh, they can be clearly above 500, but I don't think they'll ever be elite enough to get him in the top three. Considering he won last year, and considering the great candidates that we have, and Giannis, and LeBron, and everything like that. But they've won three straight. They're back at 500. You mentioned the 50-point triple-double. He followed it up tonight with another triple-double on 64% shooting from the field in 41 minutes against the Grizzlies on the road. Um, he's back. Um, over the past five or so, maybe the past two weeks, he's basically been at last year's level. We'll see if it continues, and we'll see how they continue with their record, because that's a huge part of, of Harden's candidacy. Same thing for Davis. We know the numbers are going to be there. We know he's going to put up these monster stats. We know they're going to be really inconsistent as a team. If they just can't get—if they can't break away from 500, it, it's it's just not—it's going to kill his candidacy. When you've got these guys who are also putting up the eye-opening stats— you know, like a Giannis, who's winning, who's on a team with second-best team in the East. LeBron, who's leading a top-four team in the Lakers, on pace for 50 wins. Steph, of course, is, is Steph, and has such a tremendous impact on the Warriors. We've seen what happens when he's not on the floor or not playing for them. So, and Kawhi, obviously, on the best team in the league. You know, not counting the Warriors when they're fully healthy and engaged. But so, for AD, the the record just has to be better. Same for Harden, of course. The numbers are going to be there. But the top four guys that I have, or, or and we both have, I think, is because of their team is also having the great record and they're putting up the numbers. You have to have both to win MVP because the, the, the 16, 17 Thunder, they won, I think, 47 games. They didn't win 41. They didn't win 43. They didn't even win 45. Those extra wins, getting close to 50, is a big deal for MVP. Um, so that's what's going to kill AD and probably what's going to kill Harden unless those either the Pelicans or the Rockets go on an insane run that I don't think anyone's kind of expecting.
1: Yeah. You're right. I mean, and they're right now currently sitting 12th. They're one of the hottest teams in the West, and the West is just a bloodbath, as we already mentioned. The fact uh-huh. that they're 12th and just coming back on what in the East would be, you know, a solid team, it's crazy. But yeah, we're definitely going to have to put them in the future.
0: Yeah, so quarter season, again, still kind of a small sample for basically all these awards. I think some are much more clear, straightforward than others. Like Siakam probably will maintain most improved, hopefully stays healthy. Doncic, I feel like, is kind of a clear-cut rookie of the year at this point. Nick Nurse, if the Raptors keep playing at this level, I think will be coach of the year. MVP could be swung pretty easily, I think. I think six men is also up in the air. Defensive player could change. We can get a candidate come, not really out of nowhere, but maybe some of these other lesser-known, uh, lesser-talked-about defensive player of the year candidates emerge as their team's defense improves, maybe. Um, so let's end it with a quick one that's not really talked about that much. Executive of the year. I mean, we've we got to stay in Toronto. Uh, Masai Ujiri, I mean, he got Kawhi at the peak of Kawhi's powers, who is a clear upgrade from DeMar DeRozan. Uh, so so much of an upgrade, honestly, when you look at the way he provides on defense, how he provides actual three-point shooting compared to DeRozan. And the, the best part about that the trade is that they somehow got Danny Green in that deal as a throw-in from everyone else's perspective. But I feel like the Raptors were just, you know, they realized that the Spurs, the, the Spurs did not cherish or really, you know, not worship, but the Spurs did not really appreciate Danny Green like everyone else in the league did, which is so weird and so unspurs-like. But they didn't value him as much as everyone else did. The Raptors got him in the deal as a quote-unquote throw-in, and he has been so good for the Raptors. It's just incredible that they actually got him in the same deal for Kawhi Leonard when the return that they gave for Kawhi Leonard was pretty fair on its own. Um, so mm-hmm. because of that, because he set the team up to win now, but uh-huh. also, he set them up to kind of jumpstart a rebuild if Kawhi leaves because they can clear out a little bit more cap space, maybe go in more of a youth movement, and they get the Derozan contract off the books. Um, they've he set them up for now and later. Of course, if Kawhi stays, they make the finals, compete in the compete in the finals. They're if Kawhi stays, they're basically a finals contender every year, and especially if the Warriors blow up, they could be a final, uh, a championship, really, real championship contender or favorite. Um Very much. You have to respect, I think. The fact that he's not afraid to make bold moves and go for it. Um, And so far, it's working out. Maybe it blows up in their face and they lose early in the playoffs or like they lose in the conference finals, Kawhi leaves, and then they completely go in a rebuild. But honestly, for a Raptors team that had such little playoff, such not enough playoff success to warrant the regular season success that they had, if they do have this season and they lose in the conference finals and Kawhi leaves and they start a rebuild, I don't think that's that bad for them, considering where Lowry is with his age and what they haven't been able to achieve, if that is the case. Because a lot of people were calling for not a rebuild, or a lot of people were calling for like a retooling, um, or maybe even a rebuild after they got swept by the Cavs. Um, If he set them up to do the rebuild maybe one year later, after they give out a try, they take a swing for a true final-slash-championship contender, and so far it's working out perfectly. So, Masai Ujiri.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's not really much of argument there from me either. He made the trade that was, I mean, lack of a better word, ballsy, um fired up a fan base they're a franchise player everything already rehashed the the risk um the rate the make or miss uh kind of a uh, ratio is significant here and you already broke that down and how that would work out it has to be isai i mean not only the fact that he made the move and it happened but also the product and the results in the court are are so far Above all expectation. And we already thought there was going to be a solid team, you know, as we do the roster configuration and the NBA 2K, I like to call it type of uh, <laughs> manipulation on how a player would fit without realizing the more human element of it. And it's all coming together. So, no, it will have to be Masai. And I, I really think there's him, and then there's that's it for me.
0: So, here's a, just a fun style. I was looking it up. Can you take a guess of what Danny Green's net rating is this year? Um, it's, net rating. It's positive for sure, but what? Let's take a guess of what Danny Green's net rating is.
1: Uh, uh, can. I, all right, let me let me get one. Uh, I, I guess a uh, feeler out question. Is it uh, double digits?
0: It is double digits.
1: Can I say conservatively plus eleven?
0: It's plus twenty five point five. he ranks in the 100th percentile for net rating plus 25.5 is honestly the most shocking stat that I've seen in a long time. I honestly, I literally looked at it and my jaw actually like moved down, like it opened my mouth. That's how surprising I, that was. I,
1: I cannot comprehend it. That is insane. Oh my twenty-five. God. I thought it was being conservative. It was gonna be like a plus fifteen or something. E. I was, was eighteen, but, and this wow. is twenty-five
0: point five. I'm unbelievable. Um, it's but yeah, I mean, he was a throw-in in that deal. It just makes uh, Masai Ujiri's case for executive of the year even better. But uh, how do you finesse that exactly? Exactly. So let's move on and finish up with some. Maybe not all of these categories are going to be fun because some of them are negative, but they're fun categories at least. So most most surprising player slash team, and we can couple that with most disappointing player slash team. I think when we view things like this, it's very easy to look at the most disappointing players and teams. Um, surprising teams and players, obviously, that jumped out were definitely the Mavs and Kings. Um I think the Nuggets being this good, I expected them to be a good like fifty win team, but the fact that they're winning with their injuries is surprising to me at least. Um, you know, I'm looking at the standings there. You know, the, the Magic being somewhat competitive at this point is, is still fairly surprising. They've won two in a row. They are still in the playoff picture um, in the A seed. Um, Clippers were surprising. Maybe they're falling off a little bit. The Grizzlies, they've lost two. You know, they're down to seventh in the West. You know, I, I, I was surprised about them before, but not as much surprised as I was about obviously the Kings and the Mavericks. Um, so those are teams that, you know, surprised me. Um, disappointing teams, obviously Rockets, the Jazz, I think the Suns being as bad as they are is, you know, disappointing. Um, the Wizard, obviously the Wizards, they're perennial, perennially listed on this category. Um, the Heat, you know, disappointing. I mean, they've won, you know, they're 12 and 16, five and five. They just, they just cannot pull it together for a run. Still sitting on the playoff picture looking in. I think, Player-wise, you know, Chris Paul, we talked about this on last week's episode of how he just has not been good. He's having the worst year of his career. Otto Porter is another player who's struggling, um, not playing at the level we saw last year. So, you know, those are just the ones that jumped out off the top of my head of disappointing and surprising.
1: Yeah, I mean, disappointing, we already jumped on most. I I would say, again, Washington, I didn't think that they would be as bad. You know what I mean? And this trade doesn't help them at all for me um, because I look at not only the proc on the floor, but also management. has scratch my head going, "What are you doing?" Um, and, and that's like you said, this just disappointing, surprising, surprising team. The Kings, I never in a million years saw the way they're playing. Uh, they had a, a great game against the Warriors. What was it yesterday? The night before? Uh, they, I mean, they're, they're they're just playing like a, a very solid, enjoyable, fun way of playing. But they're competitive, and it's not a, a joke or mirage. They're a really competitive team. Um, so that's good. But disappointing, it's, it's hands down Washington. I, I just don't know how you get the talent that you have on the floor, and yet they're so dysfunctional. And this dysfunction starts at the top with the organization, Ernie Grunfeld, and works his way down to the players. You have star players, you know, yelling at the GM. You have John Wall talking candid about how he's doing with, you know, how I feel. I'm going to do this on my off time and this and that. I, I, it's just – it's not a professional – the way they're representing themselves is not professional, and it shows on the floor. You bring Dwight Howard, Not even going to go into all the drama that's happened with him as well and his injuries and how uh, – not affected that he was on the floor, you brought in a player like Austin Rivers, and he was actually solid for them. Didn't really have too much to do, and he's gone now. Uh, now you bring in Trevor Ariza for a reason that few of us can figure out. They are the most disappointing, and wow, that's, that's really it. I mean, all the other teams that are kind of not performing up to task, the Rockets, you know, we already talked would would be as well, but they're coming back now. So I feel like if we've done this maybe last week. I'd definitely be all on them right now. Like, what are they doing? This and that. I told you, Trevor Rees and Bob Mute were the difference makers. Mm-hmm. Yada yada yada. But um, yeah, it's Washington for me. Disappointing. And then it would be uh, um, Sacramento most surprising.
0: Yeah. So let's get <laughs> let's get a little bit more negative, I guess. Um, who
1: <laughs> go down that hole?
0: Before I ask who are your worst free agency pickups, we all know who mine is. Um, it's a guy. <laughs> three letters. M C W. Michael Carter Williams. Definitely the worst. I mean, still, baff. to this day, I still need a 30-for-30 30 30 of an inside look of the Rockets' front office, the first weekend of free agency when they were discussing signing Michael Carter-Williams. Um, I don't understand. Anyways, I don't want to rant too much. Obviously, I think I've, I think I've mentioned him almost every episode uh, since the season has started somehow, um, but he's definitely up there for worst free agency pickup. Carmelo Anthony as well. Um, oh, yeah. People, of course, everyone wanted to talk themselves into Anthony one more time, and it didn't work. Um, and it didn't work, uh, you know, pretty clearly like early to the season. Maybe maybe give credit to the Rockets for cutting bait so early, I guess, instead of kind of you know stick through it. Um, but that doesn't mean he's not a bad free agency pickup. Trevor Reza, I thought, I didn't like it when and when the signing happened. I kind of understood it for like leadership perspective, but I also viewed it as they would, thought they were going to be more competitive, and I didn't make make sense for me at all. Um, Avery Bradley is, is quietly kind of up there for me because you got a two year deal, and I know the second year is is pretty much mostly non-guaranteed, but he's been really rough. I mean, he has a minus seven net rating and he is, uh, in, in real plus minus, he is only among shooting guards in real plus minus. He is number 100 out of shooting guards in real plus minus. Wow. That's how bad he's been. Um, in a slightly different vein, um, it's not really a worse frequency pickup, but Portland letting Ed Davis and Shabazz Napier and Pat Connaughton walk and trying to replace them with Seth Curry, Nick Stauskas, and just letting Zach Collins grow into his role. I'm going to put it here for kind of just like worst frequency kind of move. Um, they're 16-13, and 13 kind of treading water, but their bench, you know, Stauskas, after that hot shooting start, especially against the Lakers on the opening night, he's kind of been, you know, what Nick Stauskas is, um, so that's not been great. Um, Marco Bellinelli, I think I'll put up here because he's actually had a positive net rating this season, um, but I still think that signing's pretty bad because they gave him a second year on that deal, and he really he provides no defense, and he really can't play against the best teams if you don't if you want to you know not get carved up you know if he's going to be on the floor against the best teams mm-hmm. like the Rockets when they do their switching execution they're going to target him and, and things like that so I think he's been fine this year actually a positive net rating provides some offensive flair but their defense is abysmal and a big reason why is because they're playing bad defenders like him and he has a second year on it which who knows what he's going to be like next year if he's already kind of this bad defensively this year so those were a couple that came to mind in terms of worst free agency moves. I
1: only thought one more in there Jabari Parker. Yeah uh, hands down, I mean, he somehow managed to sign with his hometown team, and not even three months later, basically play himself out of rotation Uh, there's just a lot going on there, I get the turmoil the with the coaching and the roster and everything but I think his attitude going in and not that he had a negative one, but the whole I mean, here's the thing, you know I'm not gonna rehash this too much, but I didn't like the whole stance of oh it was funny, easy to make jokes about, but the whole, you know, they didn't pay me for offense, they played me you know, they didn't pay me for defense, you know, I'm paid to score all they got you know, the good stuff he gave. Um in the NBA, especially on a team like the Bulls where you have all these young players who are gonna get playing time. You have a coach here who was a scrappy gutty kind of defensive guys. I'm not gonna mention the caliber of the coach, although guess what? He was embraced by um the the great and illustrious uh, uh, Greg Popovich, his idol. So mm-hmm. I do want to put some points in there for Jim Bowling's book next time we're to compare the 2018 Chicago Bulls to the Spurs of the heyday. But um, yeah, hands down, clearly. I mean, you the two-year deal, I mean, it is – I think it's, it was a, a team option, right?
0: Yeah, team options. it's yeah. basically a one-year deal at this point. Yeah,
1: hey, <laughs> and honestly, I mean I wouldn't put past the Bulls to cut ties with them before the year is out. And that's how bad it is, because he already had, I mean, I think, again, this is where a lot of um, narrative goes in. The number two pick, you're coming back, this spot for you to play, you know, on a team that, yeah, is going to be pretty bad, but you have another guy, in Zach Levine, this kind of be the best, it'd be a flawed, but the, the next cornerstone for, you know, whatever Bulls team is coming up out of this. And for you to play so out of sorts and out of it that you basically... You know, get fledgling minutes here and there, pushed out of the rotation, back and forth, and now you're out entirely, and there's talks of you just moving on. That is shocking to me and clearly, for me, one of the worst. Although you mentioned a plethora of other great options. <laughs>
0: um, all right, let's stay negative. Um, worst <laughs> preseason it. hot take, but I actually changed this for myself because I, I went through my, like, preview notes, and I couldn't really find any, like, hot takes. So I'm just going to go with some of my worst preseason takes overall. Um Wizards winning upper 40s in games. I I said that. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. I I thought Dallas was going to win less than 34 games. That also looks like it's not going to happen. Rockets, I said that I thought they are going to win over 56 games. Clearly, it doesn't look like they're going to happen. A lot of these are like team predictions. Grizzlies, I thought, would win no more than 38 games. I thought they would win. I think I I predicted them for 37 on the the preview pod. They look like a team that's going to be better than that. Um, and then Kings, under 26 wins is what I predicted on the preview pod. That obviously does not look like a good prediction right now considering the fact that they already have 15 wins. Um, so those were – I went through all of our division preview podcast notes for myself, and those were all the, the predictions for teams that are just looking clearly to be wrong. I
1: envy you for keeping such extensive notes. <laughs> but um, I went back and listened to some of the old ones. I was so high on the Spurs, I thought that – um marty rosen would come back on the revenge tour and lead the spurs to an upper upper seed um that's that's not gonna happen i mean it doesn't look that way at all right now i definitely was major uber uber low on the grizzly specifically and this is hurts me even more to say specifically mike conley and marcus all so uh here we are Corbin and on that um you know i'm surprised by how many of my hot takes so far have, have actually been okay and haven't been haven't been too bad, especially for someone who who talks such you know crazy junk. Um, <laughs> definitely a lot a lot higher on the Lakers supporting cast um, than I had really any right to be. Although they've been playing well as of late, but that was it. And then I'm still the verdict is still out for me on. I wasn't high on Toronto. I was high on the defensive potential. I thought they'd be one of the upper echelon teams, but I really had Boston as repeating and and everyone come together and them being a superpower. And while they'll be a very good team. And the contender um, in, in name, definitely, and as they kind of gel together, they're not the team I expect them to be. And I definitely juiced them up in our uh, training camp, which I want to kind of dial back a little bit on now.
0: Um, well, we can transition because one of my best preseason predictions, which is one of our next segments, is okay. that I thought the Raptors were going to be the best team in the East and go to the finals. And so far, obviously, like you said, a lot can change, but I think that this team has shown the ability to be the best team in the East and a Finals contender. Um, just the way they've been so good, you know, even with with or without Kawhi, with Lowry struggling at times, how they've kind of built up this recipe for modern success with just having a bunch of good defensive wings and bigs, doing some switching. They've got enough shooting with Lowry, you know, Kawhi, Danny Green, Fred lead off the bench. They've got some ball handling. Um, I think they could need, you know, maybe one more go-to guy if a team can kind of take out Lowry from – a game um, and kind of they would have to put a lot of pressure on Kawhi offensively, put more pressure on Danny Green, which I don't want, know if you want to rely on come playoff time. But I think that prediction or that thought of the Raps being the best team in the East and going to the finals, from my perspective, has looked pretty good so far. I think a lot can change though. Um, obviously, the Celtics, you know, stepping things up would change a lot. Um, and then my other one that I thought um, I picked the, the under on the Heat to win. It was the the over under was 41 and a half, and I picked the under pretty confidently and so far it looks like that's going to come true because i think they're on pace for around 36 wins with their start with their net rating um so that's looking pretty good but other than that i couldn't find any of my predictions that like looked really really good
1: yeah i kind of felt the same i was more conservative more conservative than i thought i would be i would i'm proud that i was not as high on the ra- on the rockets and i've kind of said I did not like their offseason. You know, you did as well. But I was definitely like, they're dumb, you know, know, over the top. Um, And, you know, although they are starting to play better now, I'm definitely happy that I saw the warning signs as soon as Ariza put the pen on the paper for Phoenix. Not saying, not saying that that was the point, but that that was a sign for me. Also, I was higher on the Mavs and even talked about them possibly being a French playoff team at times before I dialed that back. However, here they are playing well, so I'm going to go back and say, hey, listen, Corbin was on the on the up and up with that one. And although this is extremely biased, I was high on the Lakers, and I thought they had a strong LeBron season in them, and that younger players would step up. And although they weren't exactly the younger players I thought, <laughs> Brandon Ingram, Kyle Kuzma's been playing well, Josh um, Hart's been playing well, LeBron's been doing strong, and the Lakers are kind of right where I thought they would be, um, which is surprising, especially with their s- ugly start they had.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I didn't have I didn't have that many great predictions. I had, I didn't have that many terrible predictions, but yeah, you're there. It's you kind of fun the- to like reflect on what we thought at the time and how things have actually played out. It's it's fun every once in a while.
1: It is. I enjoy it.
0: Um, all right, so that'll wrap up this week's episode of the the show. Um, make sure to follow us on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros um, I'm going to continue doing my NBA morning after um, Twitter moments um, a couple times throughout the week as well. Um, of course, if you follow me and you follow the site, at the 94 underscore, um, you'll get all the updates for our written content on the site, this podcast, my morning after stuff, and all of our Twitter thoughts. Um, of course, Corbin, you can throw out where people can follow and engage with you.
1: All right. At Corbin Ford NBA, please find me there. Also, at the 94 underscore, under, 94 underscore, Eric already mentioned great content every day, podcast dropping, Um Basically every day, Monday through Friday. And on the weekend, you have the Restricted Area podcast that's also coming out, as well as our own. So be on the lookout for that, good content. Going to get back to doing the best of 94 on Monday, where you guys will see that all in one, you know, easy to look at uh, thread. So you can follow all of our content out that that day. And uh, yeah, just show me some love on Corb- at Corbin Ford NBA, because I've uh, been neglecting that. But I got to grow that a little bit, you know, have some quirky fun over there with y'all, and uh, we'll get that thing popping.
0: All right, so yeah, definitely follow us for all of our content. Um, Enjoy the episode. Enjoy all of our written and audio content um, under the 94 umbrella. Um, Have a great week of watching NBA basketball. Take care.
1: All right, y'all.